Serenata. Our pilgrim is not done with him. Our poet is not done with him. Hi, I'm Mark Scarborough, and this is the podcast Walking with Dante, a podcast in which, you know, we slow walk through Dante's masterwork comedy. I say this every time, but hey, I gotta say it. We are in Inferno. We are at Canto 10, and we are at lines 94 through 121 a, we're going to stop in the middle of the first line of a tercet in this episode because it is all that we're going to get of Ferranata. We have had Ferranata standing up in his tomb. We've had Ferranata talking to our pilgrim. We've had a shade interrupt them, Cavalcante. We've had Ferranata continue just where he left off. And now we get to the end in which Ferranata and Dante have a most unusual exchange. Canto 10, lines 94 through 121a. Okay, and so that your heirs may find rest, I entreated him, please untangle the knot that has confused my ability to judge rightly. If I have heard you right, it seems that you see in advance what time will bring forward, yet the present seems another thing entirely. We see things he said, like someone who is standing in a bad light. Things that are distant from us, so much does the high guide still illuminate for us. But when they get close or even come into being, our minds are totally empty. Unless someone brings news, we don't have any way of knowing about the state of your human affairs. Therefore, you can comprehend that our understanding will be completely dead at that point when the door of the future is shut tight. Then feeling as if I should repent my faults, I said, will you tell the one who fell down beside you that his son is still joined up with the living? And please explain my silence. Tell him that at the moment I was still working under the error that you just unknotted for me. My master was now calling me back, so without delay, I asked the spirit to let me know who was down in there with him. He said, Here I lie with more than a thousand. The second Frederick is inside, and the cardinal too. I will be silent about the rest of them. And then he withdrew. That is the end of Farinata in this passage. But believe it or not, not in comedy. Fernata and this dialogue with him will come up again in Purgatorio and again in Paradiso. This conversation, the long conversation we've been exploring between our pilgrim and Fernata, is so important that the poet feels the need to reference back to it twice in each of the two further canticles of this poem. Let's look at this passage. We're going to look at it in six different divisions, six pieces, and we're going to start with just the first line. If you remember, Farinata has predicted Dante's exile, and so our pilgrim starts up with, okay, and so that your heirs may sometime find rest. I want to stop on this word, okay, there in the Florentine. Yeah, is an admission of some sort. It's a kind of, all right, fine, or okay, or a sigh, or a kind of mild yes, maybe like, yep. What it shows is camaraderie. 
It is a kind of colloquial camaraderie that has suddenly developed between our pilgrim and Ferranata, because this is going to begin the section in which our pilgrim is forced to admit certain things. So let's just step back. If you remember this whole canto, it started as, well, to use the vulgar term, a pissing match. It was a kind of one-upsmanship between Ferranata and Dante about who were your ancestors, as Ferranata the jerk says. And then Dante responds, you know, well, mine at least learn the art of coming back and from exile twice, something that yours never learned because you went into exile once and then twice, but you never came back the second time. And it's this kind of, you know, my machismo between the two of them. What started out as that has moved to common ground. Ferranata has just admitted that he alone stood up to save Florence to keep it from being burned. And he has told Dante that Dante will go into exile too, that our pilgrim is headed for where Ferranata ended up. There is common ground. Dante and Ferranata both love Florence And this is more important, they are both fellow sufferers. And it seems like in this word, de, I know it's a lot to put on just a little interjection. And yet it seems to me as if our poet and our pilgrim have come to realize that he and Ferranata, or they and Ferranata, share common ground. I explained to you in the last episode about Dante amongst the Ghibellines in exile But I think there's more to it than that here. There is an emotional connection. I want to stop before I go on, and I just want to say that I don't want to make too much of this. This is not about, how shall I say, it's not about finding the humanity in Hitler. It's not about finding the humanity in Pol Pot. That's not what I'm arguing for here. It's not even about necessarily finding the humanity in Robert E. Lee. It is instead about discovering that someone who you thought was your enemy may in fact have been working toward similar goals that you were working toward and that you both share a kind of fellow suffering. It's not about finding the humanity in Hitler, not at all. In fact, it's about finding some way that you can overcome a difference with someone whose concerns may not in the end have been that far from your own concerns. And so it's a re-understanding, a reassessment of history, a reassessment of what is actually going on at this particular moment. It's more like escaped African-American enslaved people in the 19th century finding common ground with abolitionists in the North. And they, they both have a common goal, that is to eradicate slavery. And the enslaved people who have escaped realize that the abolitionists are using them as showpieces. And yet at the same time, they are finding themselves caught in a matrix together with them. That still is not exactly this, because what's at the root of this is that they're both exiles, and that they both love Florence, and they both were banished from Florence. So, there. Okay, as I translated it. And it goes on. The pilgrim says, so that your heirs may sometime find rest. Can they? Where are we again? We're in hell. 
the sixth circle. The actual wording here is so that your seed may sometime find rest. I translate it as heirs because that's ultimately what it means, but because it's future generations. But it, it, it has to do with Ferenata's family. And can the pilgrim offer this? Can the pilgrim cause the heirs to find rest? And furthermore, can the pilgrim then cause the damned to find rest? I mean, this seems to be a consolation toward Ferenata. That's saying that to your bitter enemy so that your heirs may sometimes find rest. This passage, or this, this line, harkens back a little bit to Canto 2. Remember in Canto 2 when Beatrice says to Virgil, uh, if you do this thing and go after Dante and find him and save him and put him on this journey and all that stuff, I'll mention you in heaven. And I said, what good does that do Virgil, that Beatrice is going to mention him in heaven? I mean, what, what, who cares that she's going to mention this? He's damned. Who, what does her mentioning do? And yet it seemed later in Limbo as if if there were people who were sorted out as better. So it, this line kind of harkens to that, to Beatrice's stance toward Virgil. It's different because hers seems to make a difference. Here, maybe we could almost say this is a wish. The pilgrim can't make this so. The pilgrim can't make Ferdinand's torments nor the torments of his family any easier. And yet there is a softening. There's a wish behind this. Beatrice maybe can make it so because, again, certain people are um, uh, called out in limbo. Here, maybe this is ineffectual, but at the same time, it is heartfelt. Let's move on. After he says to Ferdinand to make your heir sometime find rest, he goes on, please untangle the knot that has confused my ability to judge rightly. The knot. Oh, I want to talk about that in a minute. If I have heard you right, it seems that you see in advance what time will bring forward, yet the present seems another thing entirely. Having just come out of this entire discussion about Florence and the burning of it and the raising of it and the not burning of it and the saving of it and all of that stuff and that you're going to go into exile and we are fellow exile <laughs> all that stuff, this may seem like a misdirection. Dante suddenly, the pilgrim, suddenly asks a question about temporality and about how the damned see the future and why can they see future. This is a question that has been nagging him, apparently, since Chaco, back amongst the gluttons. Go back to Canto 6. Back amongst the gluttons, Chaco, of course, predicted future events. They weren't future, actually, when Dante was writing the poem, but still future events that would happen between the white and black gulfs in Florence. And now again, Ferdinand seems to see exile, which is in the future. So Dante jumps toward a philosophical or an abstract question about temporality, but it's a knot. And that is the word that's used to untangle, to solve the knot. Is there more of a knot here than our pilgrim recognizes? And that is a giant question about whether there is a bigger knot here. And of course, I think there is. The knot that the pilgrim needs unwound is the death of Guido Cavalcanti. Cavalcante de Cavalcanti's son, who was exiled at Dante's own hand. That is the knot here. And it is Cavalcante, the father, who rises up in the tomb. And we might say that there is a misdirection here or an attempt to take what is actually a fraught matter and push it out into a philosophical question. The big question that lies behind this is that while the pilgrim is doing this sort of misdirection, is the poet doing it too? Is the poet showing us that the pilgrim is not yet able to come to terms with his own complicity in the factionalism of Florence, or is the poet 
also misdirecting at this point. In other words, where's the air between the pilgrim and the poet? And I don't have an answer to that. It seems to me that the passage brings it up. It raises this question for us, but it doesn't seem like I can answer it from this passage. So what we have here is this misdirection. (laughs) Is it a misdirection? This misdirection from questions of political strife into questions of theology or ontology or how the damned see or epistemology. We have something less personal, in other words, that is suddenly asked by our pilgrim. And the question is, is the poet doing that to show us the pilgrim is not ready or is the poet also not ready? Is the poet complicit in this misdirection in some way. I have another answer for that, but I'm going to save it for a little bit further down in the passage. So let's just pass on now to the third part. Farinata says, we see things differently. <laughs> we see things like someone who is standing in a bad light. I want to talk about this in just a second. Things that are distant from us, so much does the high guide still illuminate from us. High guide is probably a reference to God, probably in Farinata's terminology, it's a reference to God. It may be a reference to the sun, but there is no sun shining down in the cave of hell. So it's probably a reference to God. But there is this question of illumination and bad light. Essentially, what Fanonat is claiming is that the damned, I'll talk about this in just a second, the damned are far-sighted, that they see things far off more clearly than they see things right in front of them. And because there's a reference to the sun's illumination or the high guide's illumination later, Many people think that this is a reference when he says we're like someone standing in a bad light is a reference actually to twilight. You know that things are, as the sun goes down, things are illuminated closer to the horizon. If you've ever been out in the American plains or in the Canadian plains and you've ever stood out in Saskatchewan or in Kansas and the sun has gone down and you've noticed that there is, I don't know, there's a windmill or a water mill out on the edge toward the horizon and you know notice that as the sun goes down, that kind of gets clearer because the light seems to be coming through it. And that seems to be the the claim here, that basically we stand in twilight or towards sunset. And so we see things out there better than we see them up close. Does this, and this is an intriguing question, does this explain Virgil's doubt? In Canto 9, when Virgil is hesitating about, well, somebody must be coming to save us. Remember, standing in front of the walls of this, somebody must be coming to save us. Who's coming to save us? That whole bit where Virgil goes back and forth in doubt, is this part of the explanation that Virgil can't see the things that are happening close up, but he can see the things happening far away? So he knew far from far off that someone's coming, but then once it gets close, he can't see it anymore? Maybe. Let's just look at the, look at the passage a little more. But when those things out there get close or, or even come into being, Ferenata says, our minds are totally empty, vano. You should hear the word vanity in there, vano. But empty, useless, they're of no use to us. So there's this notion that when things get close, their minds just empty out. It's wildly existential. It has this wildly modern, crazy, we would expect this in a Beckett play, this wild thing that they can see the future, but they can't see temporally. And it's, it's, there's a fusion of temporality and distance here. They can see things temporally far out, but they can't see them up close and their minds 
become totally empty. It's that additional phrase, our minds are totally empty or useless, our vano. That it's that phrase that makes it so wildly modern. It, it gives it a feel. It gives it a human feel. That a blank mind, a mind that is useless. Unless someone brings news, and later we'll find out that one of the ways that the damned find out the news is the newly damned arrive, carrying news of exactly what happened before they died with them. But for now, let's just say, unless someone brings news, as Fernanda does, we don't have any way of knowing about the state of your human affairs. And I should just note that right here at that bit of your human affairs, Fernanda does use the formal of you. He switches out of the um, of the informal you and into the formal you. Now, it could be that when he's using this formal you, what he's really using is the plural you, and that he's saying you as in you all of all humanity. It still jumps out a little bit to me in the passage in the, in the Florentine that Ferenata flips here because there has been such a movement of the pilgrim and Ferenata toward each other. What if that use of the formal you there is not necessarily about all humans, all human affairs, the big plural you, but what if it's just directed at our pilgrim? If so, there has truly been a movement toward each other of honoring each other in some way. And that has got to come out of, A, their mutual love of Florence, and B, their mutual position as fellow sufferers, as exiles. And then Farinata says the most shocking thing in the passage. Therefore, you can comprehend that our understanding will be completely dead at that point when the door of the future is shut tight. This passage right here, Farinata's explanation of the future, moves from a kind of oh, a mechanical explanation. We see it far off, you know, twilight, sunset, all that kind of stuff. It moves until it gets to this point, which we wouldn't ever expect. You can't expect it got to this point when it when he started in about how, how sight works for the dam. So he says, therefore, as if it's a syllogism or as if it's a logical explanation, you can understand that our understanding, you can comprehend that our our understanding will be completely dead at the point when the door of the future is shut tight. That is, let me just explain, that is when the heavens stop moving. If you remember, we are in a Ptolemaic universe. The spheres of the stars and the planets are rotating over us. And later, up in the Paradiso, we will discover that the movement, the spinning of these spheres is literally what generates time. And so in the future, when the door, when the door of the future is shut tight, it's this reference that the spheres that are generating time will stop moving and that time itself will stop. This is a crazy point, and it's a crazy point theologically, and it's a crazy point metaphysically, but I want to make it crazier in terms of the comedy. This is the farthest flung temporal reference in the entire comedy. This is this moment in which time shall be no more, and there is no point in comedy that mentions a time beyond this. You could say, well, it's inevitable that a theological poem would eventually get to the point where it mentions this moment in which, quote unquote, time shall be no more. Yeah, sure. It's just odd that it's given to Ferenata, that the farthest out point, the farthest 
out temporal marker in all of comedy is put in Ferenata's mouth. Now, it's true he's, he's the one who started to say we see things far off, more clearly than up close, and so he's going to give an example of that. But he could give a lot of examples of that. <laughs> he doesn't have to give an example at the very end of everything. He could give a lot of examples in between those two things. That somehow he gets the ringing song of the end of the universe further illustrates the ambiguity that imbues and colors his character standing there in the burning tomb. That he gives the line that any um, uh, prophet would give, that Jesus himself gives about the final future moments that St. Paul talks about, that that's all put in Ferenata's mouth, the farthest flung temporal reference, curiouser and curiouser. Let's move on. Then feeling as if I should repent my faults, the pilgrim says, I said, I just want to pause on this then feeling. The word is allor in the Florentine, and it does carry kind of the association of the modern French allor. It, it kind of has this feeling of, well, okay then, or all right. Uh, now that Farinata has basically laid out the entire future to the end of the universe, allo, okay, okay, then then I got to do something. And what the pilgrims got to do is feeling as if I should repent my faults. I said, will you tell the one who fell down beside you, that is Cavalcante, the father of Guido, Dante's rival poet, that his son is still joined up with the living? For the first time in comedy, Dante the Pilgrim repents. He repents something that he's done. He says that I made a mistake and I added to the suffering of the damned. Now, you know, ultimately the answer is one should add to the suffering of the damned because they are damned. And yet here again, just as in the opening of this passage, so that your heirs may sometime find rest, Dante seems to alleviate the suffering. The pilgrim alleviates the suffering of the damned and maybe even more so. After all, it's hard not to hear the guilt of Dante's actions, that Dante has sent Guido into exile, that Guido has died in the malarial marshes, perhaps on his way back to Florence, and that Dante's complicity in factionalism is here being absolved in some fundamental way, and the suffering of the damned is being alleviated. In fact, maybe more so than you think, because Dante, you realize by telling Ferenata to tell Cavalcante this, Dante, the pilgrim, is getting a ghibelline to talk to a gelf. Down there in that tomb, that ghibelline and that gelf are going to have to have a conversation if Ferenata follows up on what our pilgrim said. I don't know that he does, but I'm assuming he does, which means that our pilgrim has got Ghibellines and Gelfs talking together. And the pilgrim goes on, please explain my silence. Tell him that at that moment I was still working under the air that you just unknotted for me. Keiji. 
This is perhaps a reference back to Chaco. Remember Chaco, the gluttons? I've mentioned him already, Canto 6. You can go back and look at that again. Remember Chaco? And he was he prophesied things that were about to happen. So close up things. Maybe our pilgrim is a little bit uh, confused because, listen, Chaco was talking about things only a year or so off. So he was seeing things fairly up close well at that point. Maybe. But this still seems cagey. It still seems wily. It still seems very difficult all the ways around. In fact, let me tell you that the great Danteist, Bruno Nardi, in the 1960s proposed that the entire comedy is dated the way it is in the year 1300 so that our poet can never have to discuss his own complicity in the death of his fellow poet, Guido. Nardi is the first one to say that the comedy's dating is in fact done this way so that it is dated right before our poet exiles his fellow poet Guido. And because of that, it never comes up except here in oblique moments. And Nardi claims, it's a big claim, that that's part of the whole reason the comedy is dated in 1300, is to basically get our poet back behind his own terrible factionalist move and to therefore have him never need to deal with that. I'm not sure. I'm not sure that this passage is not dealing with it in all kinds of sublimated and difficult ways, ways that are human for sure, but ways that in the end, deflect as much as they explain. You know, Cavalcante's question, his horrifying question, where is my son? It doesn't really get absolved by saying, hey, I was working under a philosophical or metaphysical error when I didn't answer him right, when I gave a verb that the tense might not be right. It doesn't solve it. It just feels cagey. Our pilgrim may be coming to terms with what happened. Our pilgrim may be realizing his own position in factionalism. Our pilgrim may be realizing, and we'll talk more about this in the next episode, our pilgrim may be realizing that there is no way out of the cycle of shame and vendetta. And yet at the same time, throughout this passage, we see these strange misdirections about the future or here saying, you know, well, I was still, I was, I was trying to figure out this thing about how the damned can know what's going to happen in the future. So, so that's why I didn't tell Cavalcante that his son is still alive up above. Maybe. It feels like there's so much more going on underneath this text. It feels, and this is where the text gets super modern, it feels right, like the text has a subconscious that the text is expressing subconscious sublimation or it's, it's misdirection. It feels like the text is moving underneath itself in different ways that it's moving up on its surface. That is what makes the comedy so modern. That is why this podcast exists because, well, this is just so wildly loose, modern, human. It stands in the gap between the classical world and the modern world. Let's pass on to the last bits of the passage. My master was now calling me back. So without delay, I asked the spirit to let me know who else was down there with him. So now just informational. We've kind of come out of the guilt. We've kind of come out of the metaphysical quandaries. And so now just, you know, hey, one last thing, who's with you? And he said, 
Here I lie with more than a thousand crowded tomb. The second Frederick is with me. Ah, uh, let's stop right here. Emperor Frederick II, the Holy Roman Emperor, the King of Sicily and Naples. He was Holy Roman Emperor, but he really wanted to be the King of Sicily and Naples, who died in 1250. The leader of the Sixth Crusade and the great foe of the papacy. We're not done with Frederick by any understanding of the word. He's going to come up again when we get down to the suicides. But for now, this is our first big mention of Frederick II. Oh, the foe of the papacy and mostly, as I said, the leader of the Sixth Crusade who actually regained Jerusalem through treaty, through negotiation. And in fact, Frederick's court in Sicily is the court that was open to Islamic scholars. Much of what is known of Islamic learning, including things like algebra and Aristotle's text, come up through Sicily and Frederick's courts. He had, without a doubt, one of the most glittering, amazing courts in medieval Europe. If you'd like to know more about Frederick II, he is a figure worthy of much study. Look up Ernest Kantorowicz's 1927 biography of Frederick II. It's still the book to look at for Frederick II. In his day, he was called Stupor Mundi, the wonder of the world, because of his unbelievably cosmopolitan and far-reaching courtly life. In fact, much of the poetry that comes up out of Islamic culture into Frederick's court bubbles up to Tuscany and becomes the new style that Dante himself is writing. Why is Frederick here? He was a foe of the papacy. Was he an Epicurean? I don't know. Maybe. I mean, he had a pretty sumptuous court. It's unclear, actually, why Frederick is here. In fact, it may be unclear why Dante needs to damn him. Frederick is excommunicated, but later we'll find out in comedy that there's a way out of excommunication. So maybe at this point, Dante still thinks he has to just put the excommunicated in hell. By the time we get to Purgatorio, he's changed his mind. Maybe the poem is in process, even as we're reading it. It is a process document. So maybe, but what we know is the second Frederick is inside. And the Cardinal, this is Ottaviano de Ubaldini. He died in 1273 from an absolutely storied Tuscan Ghibelline family basically tried to be allies with the Ghibellines. They kind of let him down and and uh, kind of did a double cross on him. And he reportedly said, if I have a soul, I have lost it a thousand times to the cause of the Ghibellines. That if I have a soul, maybe that reported claim is enough to damn him here amongst the heretics because we're told these are the Epicureans who deny the immortality of the soul. I should just mention that the cardinal here, he is part of this, as I said, story Tuscan family, but also part of the story of comedy. We're going to meet more members of his family. His brother, Ubaldino della Pila, Pila, is down in Purgatorio. Well, I shouldn't say down. He's up in Purgatorio. We're going to come across him in Purgatorio 24, and we're going to come across this guy's uncle, Archbishop Ruggieri, 
way down in Inferno 33, one of the most horrific and disgusting sinners in all of Inferno. This is a family that gets three different figures poked around in comedy. So no wonder they're so important. And here's the first one, the Cardinal in the tomb with Farinata. So finally, the last bit. And then he withdrew. Farinata disappears as he comes in kind of austere grandeur. The phrase could actually be translated, and then he hid himself, meaning he slipped back down into the tomb itself. But if it's that, he hid himself, which is probably closer to what the Florentine says. Notice that the action is all his own. Notice that he is in control of himself and even at the end hides himself. And his nobility is even found in the claim that he won't mention others in the tomb. He seems this figure who vacillates between being a jerk and being unbelievably noble, between being empathetic and being incredibly revealing. He seems to vacillate and move out from under us in a constant phasing cycle. So why is Farinata here? And why is he damned? That's the subject of the next episode of the podcast, Walking with Dante. So subscribe, like this podcast, give it a rating, go to the Apple page. If you're on the Apple podcast, go straight to the bottom. It says, leave a review, (laughs) leave a review. I would most appreciate it. It certainly helps with the analytics. Someone left a review recently and said that this podcast was niche, but very solid. And I have to tell you, if you're listening, I danced around my house when I read that. Because back when I started the podcast, Walking with Dante, last September, I had to, of course, come up with some kind of mission statement. And I worked and worked on it with my husband about what would be the mission of this this podcast. He told me I needed to get it down to three words. And the three words I chose were niche, beautifully crafted. So when I read Niche but Very Solid, I thought, oh my gosh, I got to fulfill my goal, my mission statement for the podcast. Thanks for that. Subscribe, like, come back. Next time, why is Farinata here? And why is he damned? On the podcast, Walking with Dante. (laughs) 